Alrighty, so today we are talking about Indigenous mental health and kind of just the background behind the topic. So, we start with the government and churches taking children. They were abused in almost every way imaginable. A lot of children died from the savage abuse that they received. To date, the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation has documented at least 4,118 children that have died attending residential schools. They don't estimate more than 6,000. However, the government has only recognized 139 residential schools. Only 40% of those schools have been searched. And those 139 schools don't include the exclusively church-funded residential schools, the number of which we may never know. If I had to make my own estimate, I would say somewhere around at least 7,000 children didn't get to make it home. It took about 150,000 indigenous children from their homes. Those who survived were left broken and traumatized. It is commonly thought that it is in 1996 that residential schools were closed, or at least 1995. 1996 is when St. Michael's closed. Gordon Reserve didn't close until 1998, and some of my late relatives attended an unknown school until 98 as well. The Indian Affairs Department didn't report full closure of all operating residential schools until 1999. Now, why is this important to know? Well, being raised without a family and being abused by your school for almost your entire young life leads to a lack of family capabilities, and those who did have families had extremely abusive behaviors taught to them by these residential schools. And as abuse breeds abuse, the First Nations community's mental health plummeted. The funding for education was slim. Furthermore, the Indian Act prevented post-secondary for longer than four years, which rendered all of schooling pointless overall as it didn't lead anywhere anyways. Without schooling and a means of getting a job, communities became impoverished, which led to high crime, addiction, poverty, and suicide rates within communities. Now, how did the government handle this? Well, shocker, the government decided to fix those issues by taking the children away again. Social services within Canada has had a long-standing history of discrimination against Indigenous parents. As an Indigenous parent, you are more likely to have your children taken away. Furthermore, you are less likely to receive support or uh, resources to aid you in getting your child or children back. You're less likely to receive those resources before having your children taken away either. The government of Canada created a cycle of abuse and then used that to take away our children and give them to white families. Now we are lucky to have ICWA, but even the Indian Child Welfare Act is being overturned soon in the US and I would have to imagine that Canada will most likely follow suit. So. 
If things are so bad on reserves and within the community, then why don't we just leave? It's simple. We can't. A lot of the quote-unquote benefits that we receive are only for status Indians. That means anyone that is indigenous and is uh, classified as such by the Canadian government. I, unfortunately, am not status Indian. Um, And a lot of those benefits are exclusive to those of which that live on a reserve. And another thing is that there also really just isn't anything for us on the outside. People like to think that we have a choice in the matter, however, we don't. It would be disingenuous for me to say that the government hasn't done this on purpose, because it has. They have entrapped us on the reserves and have made it so that there there just isn't a way out. A good example of this is the third generation cutoff rule. Now, what's that? Well, the third generation cutoff rule states that if three consecutive generations don't have children with someone who is status, the fourth generation will not have status. If we want our children to have the rights that we were promised within the treaties, the so-called benefits, We have to have children with someone on the reserve, since most First Nations people off of the reserve don't have status. They came to our home, they take and use our land for whatever they see fit, and then they say, if you don't like it, leave. It's just entitlement. They called us savages while they raped, beat, and murder our children. Yet, Canada's history is falsely painted as peaceful. We are called liars when we tell our story. There is a lot of talk about negotiations within history, but they didn't know or understand our language. Any chief that peacefully declined a treaty was labeled as as a rebel. It's embedded within our government and our schools. You can see it even now. We have been saying for years that the government, whether it's the US or Canadian, that they could give a shit about the environment or helping out minorities, but no one would listen. Now, the Willow Project was approved and the uh, United Nations said that we got about seven years to do everything we can to combat climate change or we reach the point of no return. The truth is that unless you go to an indigenous person for this kind of education, you won't be receiving the full truth. Because the absolute truth is that Canada has actively lied about its history and it perpetuates that in its schooling. This wasn't a misunderstanding and there aren't two sides of the story. We aren't ashamed, which is why we tell the truth. Even today, treaties are continually broken and our communities face more issues than I could name. Indigenous women and children are murdered and go missing at much higher rates than anyone else in the nation. However, schools would rather teach you about the names of colonizers and the treaties that they made. They'd rather teach you about the fur trade. They'd rather show you a whitewashed version of us in white films rather than show our own cinema. Even after being exposed for its dark past, they'd rather have someone unqualified tell you half the story. It's really important to realize that a lot of this is by design. 
it might not be your fault as an individual or your teacher's fault as an individual, but it's Canada's. And what a lot of people don't really seem to realize is that to be complacent within a matter is the exact same as supporting it. So one thing that you can do is just think whenever you do something simple, can other people do that too? When you go to get a glass of water from the tap, remember, indigenous people can't do that. If you ever want to leave your city, remember, as you are exiting the city borders, that you can do that much more freely than indigenous people can. When you go shopping and you complain about your inflation, you have to realize that there are indigenous people taking cabs for like an hour long ride to get to those stores because it's cheaper there than it is on the reserve. Yet you are complaining about the inflation that is what making you go broke and another thing what exactly is a treaty because i've noticed that there is a very 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 common misunderstanding of what it is so what history has probably taught you is that a treaty is nothing more than a type of agreement a document uh legal proceeding if you will but that could not be further from the truth Indigenous people viewed a treaty as an agreement held by two parties, witnessed and upheld by the Creator. We did not let them take our lands. We simply just could not break the treaties as it was not our way. However, I do not blame you for not knowing if you don't. However, I know. That word is coming up a lot. If you do know, and you do nothing about it, if you aren't signing petitions, if you aren't engaging in conversation, if you aren't calling out uh, discrimination when you see it, you're part of the problem. With each episode, I told you guys that I would add a personal story to each one. Today, I'm going to be talking about my time at a place called Regina Christian School. It's where I went to most of my elementary, and it is where I went to most of my high school. I went there from grade 6 to about halfway through grade 11. There's a couple of pretty disturbing things in this, so I'm going to give you guys a quick trigger warning, just... uh, Just want to put that up there. So, why was RCS so bad? Well, the first and most prevalent thing is, and much like a residential school would, they tried to cut my hair. They tried to force me to cut my hair because they saw it as unkept and dirty. While in reality, I just had long hair. I, I, I took very, very good care of it. And whenever I would try to do it in a braid or a bun or anything like that, they would tell me to take it out. And then they'd get mad and tell me to cut my hair. They would do things like offer to pay for a haircut. And it was, it was harassment almost every single day. I got in fights a lot. 
but I don't think that I was fighting for the wrong cause. Now, normally, I never, ever advocate for violence. Never. But racists oftentimes don't get the message, right? So, when I was in something like grade seven or eight, there was this kid in my class, some blonde-haired white dude. Um, I won't say his name, because can't be putting people on blast for as much as he may deserve it. But uh, he called me a stupid Indian. Yeah. And would you like to know what happened to him for doing that? Nothing. Nothing at all. But a year later after that happened, I had brought it up again because I realized that nothing happened and they pretended like it didn't. They said, what? We had no idea about this. You should have told us when it happened so we could have done something. I did, but they didn't care because he was a staff kid. That same guy told me to my face that he does not care about indigenous history. He felt comfortable saying it because I had been indoctrinated by this organization for so long that to a degree I almost started to believe it too. And then I had to take a step back and reconnect, grow up my hair, start braiding it, smudging, anything I could because I would have been damned before I would become some whitewashed native that hates his own people. I couldn't. I could never be like that. And when I realized that that was the path I was going down, immediately I just stepped back and reconnected. Now, I would later get kicked out of RCS for coming out as bisexual, which uh, is its own thing. I'll talk about that later. But uh, there weren't a lot of other indigenous kids there. I remember, and he's my friend, so I'll say his name, so he'll be okay with it. Uh, there were there were two other indigenous kids that were new, and in terms of ones that weren't new, there were two others. So there were five of us in total at the start of grade nine, maybe ten. The two indigenous kids had quit the school, the new ones, before before the first year was even up. Because the truth is, is that it's not a kind place to us. It really isn't. People there had treated me in a racist manner. I don't, I don't really know if there's any other way to put it. Um, none of them know anything about true indigenous culture. Um, and, uh, I had something really, really horrible said to me for years. I never said anything about it because I wanted people, I wanted the white kids to think I was cool and that they could be themselves around me, you know? I wanted to be part of the group. Whenever the topic of Canada's history came up, they... They referred to the slaughter of indigenous peoples as not the worst thing that could happen. And that at least there were some of us alive because they wanted to save bullets. 
Verbatim. I know a lot of this sounds fake. I know a lot of these things you could never imagine yourself or anyone else saying to the face of an indigenous person. But it was a private Christian school. An isolated building. And every single time I went in there, my culture was just stripped. There was no speaking any languages there other than French or English. There was no celebration of indigenous culture. There was no talking about indigenous events. Nothing. It was a place where indigenous history was cast aside, forgotten, and ignored. Now, there were some teachers there that did their best to combat this, and I thank them for their efforts. But the truth is, is that it just wasn't enough. Oh, it's, it's a lot to talk about. Just remember, whenever you see an indigenous person on the street, and your first thought is, oh, that's another homeless bum. I wonder what they did to end up there. Whenever you see a missing or murdered indigenous woman or girl, and you think, oh, that's a shame, and then you just turn off your TV and never think about it, that means you're part of the problem. To not have outrage over a group of people not that very far from you, within the same country, within the same province, probably less than seven hours away from your city. There's a group of people out there being persecuted, being destroyed, being taken advantage of by the government, having having oil company mercenaries trying their very best to get us off of our own land so that they can lay down pipelines. You may not know what I refer to when I say that. The Wet'suwet'en people are the great first example that I can point out as absolute fact. There are videos of it. I will try my best to add links to these things on my social media. However, whenever I do, they get taken down. I'm sure that's not by accident either. But if you look up Kirk, I believe it's either C-I-R-C or C-I-R-K, something like that, you will discover that Oil companies, like Coastal Gas Link, will hire mercenaries to come on to unceded native territory, intimidate, assault, threaten, and drag people off of their homelands and make illegal arrests via illegal e-raids. Uh, e-raids, no, just raids. <laughs> and the RCMP, what do they do? They do one of two things. They turn the other cheek, or they participate. It's 
horrible, horrible things. And I would love to say that I see things getting better. I'm sure a lot of indigenous people would. But there is a very, very harsh reality that I have had to face recently, and it's that there is a very, very good chance that things won't change. And the reason for that is because North America, they owe us far too much for them to pay back. They know that. And there is no political will to give trillions in emotional and physical damages to the First Nations communities that they have damaged. None. Not an ounce of political will to do so. They make false promises of help and hope. They give us these fake apologies and act all high and mighty. You have people like Justin Trudeau and the Pope get wearing headdresses as if that gives them some sort of PC points with the First Nations community. I can guarantee you neither of them did anything to earn a single feather of those headbands or headdresses nothing. I mean, sure, the Pope apologized, but did it really need to wait until 2016? Let's not act like this has been a problem for a short amount of time. Let's not act like that. This has been going on, and we've been, maybe at one point in time, an apology would have been enough. However, we passed that point a very, very long time ago. And the cycle that the Canadian government has put us in, it's nearly unbreakable. And apologies aren't going to be enough to fix that. They can apologize for kidnapping our children for... How many events was it? There was the residential schools, the 60s scoop in which they quite literally just stole children and sold them off to be adopted by white families to assimilate our culture. And now ICWA is being overturned again, so that'll be three. They keep on crossing boundaries, lying to us, giving fake apologies, giving fake promises. doesn't help us. The Pope can apologize all he wants, but it won't bring those children back. It won't get rid of the scars that many of our elders still have. It won't get rid of the cycles of abuse created by those residential schools. It won't undo the fact that so many children were separated from their families just to be sold off by white families that were ashamed of them. It doesn't bring them back. And to this day, you can even still see it in things like museums. They steal our artifacts. They steal our people. The story of Pocahontas falling in love is fake. John Smith was a pedophile, and she, Matoka, she was only 14. Her remains are not even in our continent, and they will never, ever be returned 
to its rightful burial grounds and to the family to which she was really born. We see it all the time and nothing ever happens. So, what can you do? Just be there. That's all it takes. Whenever there's a rally, a protest, a petition to sign, a conversation to be had, a bigot to be called out, just be there. Do it. Show your support. Because the only way that Canada is going to help the Indigenous people by giving us what we are owed is if they see that the rest of Canada backs us. Thank you for your time. My name is Kai, and uh, have a good day.